I want to start by giving you two or three quotations. Albert Einstein, who you've all almost certainly heard of, he was asked by one of his students one day, if there was anything left in the world to study for original dissertation research. Is there anything left? And his immediate reply to his student was this. Find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. John Wesley, who spent two hours every day in prayer, said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. Martin Luther always reckoned that if he didn't spend three hours per day in prayer, he would struggle to get through the day. And Charles Spurgeon said, I'd rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. So this message is very much geared to prayer. And can we just start with a word of prayer? Father, as we look at your word this morning, I just pray that you will speak to us clearly, that you will help us to understand and help us to apply your word to our everyday lives. We want to know more about you, Father. We want to get closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, the context of the passage that uh, Terry read out is Jehoshaphat. He is king of Judah. And Judah and Israel have been divided for about 80 years. Can we just have a look at the map? There you go. Judah is in the south and Israel is in the north. And Judah in the south includes Jerusalem. Now since the division of the kingdom after Solomon, there have been three previous kings of Judah before Jehoshaphat. Can we have a look at the first chart? There we go. Saul and then Solomon. Then on to the next step, coming down in years more recently. There's the split. Kings of Israel, kings of Judah. And we start with Rehoboam, Abijah, and then Asa. And Asa is the father of Jehoshaphat. So the next step, there we go. And there's Jehoshaphat in yellow. Now you'll see that there are some words on the right-hand side of each column as to whether these kings were noted by historians as having been good or bad. And in some cases, extra bad and worst. Now what that means is, good or bad, in terms of the religious reforms that those kings tried to bring in. How faithful they were to God and bringing the people back to worshipping 
the God that we know. Now Jehoshaphat comes in the good guy category. Generally speaking, he was a good guy. But we can read in chapter 18 of this second book of Chronicles that he had his bad times. Nevertheless, he worked hard to try and bring people back to God. And in chapter 17, we can read this about what Jehoshaphat did. It says, in the third year of his reign, he sent his officials to teach in the towns of Judah. With them were certain Levites and priests. They taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. They went round to all of the towns of Judah and taught the people. Now, how well those reforms were implemented was about to be tested. News arrives that Judah is about to be attacked by the combined forces of the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Munites. Can we go back to the map just for one second? And you can see down here on the right-hand side Ammon and Moab. But they have come round the sea and the Jordan, and they are up at Engedi, which is to the right-hand side, as you left-hand side as you look here, not far from Jerusalem, and that's about two or three days' march. Okay. Now, for all the changes and reforms that Jehoshaphat was making. Indeed, for all the changes that we might make to our lives as Christians, life is still a battle. And trouble sneaks up on us from any direction. As Christians, we may resolve to read our Bibles more, to get more involved in church and church activities, but that doesn't make us immune from problems. On the inside, we struggle against sin. On the outside, we struggle against illness, poverty, grief, marriage problems, financial problems, family issues. And I know we've been praying about it as a congregation earlier. Some of us have had very difficult situations to deal with recently, and some of us are still dealing with those issues right now. And as Christians, what do we do? When life comes down on us hard, there doesn't seem to be a way out. No light at the end of the tunnel. Hemmed in, problem after problem after problem. Well, let's look at what Jehoshaphat did. Let's look at his response to the mounting pressure that was coming on him and his people. Verse 3, it says, Jehoshaphat was afraid. And he turned his attention to seek the Lord and he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. So we can see three aspects there. First of all, he was afraid. He was alarmed. He was fearful when he heard that news. Now the Bible talks to us about two types of fear. The first type 
is beneficial and it should be encouraged. And the first type is fear of the Lord. A reverential awe for God. A reverence for his power, for his glory. A proper respect for his wrath and his anger. In other words, total acknowledgement of who God is. And that obviously comes through knowing him and knowing about him. We are told in scripture, fear of the Lord brings many blessings and benefits. According to Psalm 111 verse 10, it is the beginning of wisdom and leads to good understanding. Proverbs 19.23 tells us, it leads to life, rest, peace and contentment. It is the fountain of life and provides a security and a place of safety for us, says Proverbs 14.26. So fearing God should be encouraged. But there's another type. And it's not beneficial at all. This is a detriment, and we have to try and overcome it. It's the spirit of fear that Paul mentions in his letter, second letter to Timothy. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of sound mind. That spirit of fearfulness, that spirit of timidity, doesn't come from God. But sometimes, like Jehoshaphat here, we get afraid. Sometimes that spirit of fear overcomes us. And to overcome it, we have to trust and love God completely. Now, no one is perfect, and God knows that. That's why, right the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, he sprinkled many, many times two words, fear not. Gary Collins, who's a Christian counselor, has said this. According to the Bible, there is nothing wrong with realistically acknowledging and trying to deal with the identifiable problems of life. To ignore danger is foolish and wrong but it is also wrong as well as unhealthy to be immobilized by excessive worry such worry must be committed to prayer to God he can release us from that paralyzing fear or that anxiety and free us up to deal realistically with the needs and the welfare both of ourselves and of others. So secondly, Jehoshaphat does just that. He turns his attention to seek the Lord. He sets himself determinedly to seek the Lord. He resolves to inquire of the Lord. In the book of Jeremiah, Chapter 33, verse 3, 333. Three, three. Many people call that 
the telephone verse. Because God says this, call to me, call me, and I will answer you, and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. So God promises to answer us if we reach out and talk to him. Question. What does God promise if we do not reach out and talk to him? He promises to respond if we reach out and talk to him. What does he promise if we don't do that? The answer is nothing. He promises to do nothing. So Jehoshaphat quickly makes the correct response. Prayer. To discover God's will. And that means putting that higher trust in God rather than in his military resources, his human resources. And thirdly, he proclaims a fast. And a fast for all of Judah. Now prayer and fasting are connected very closely in Scripture. Look at Nehemiah when he learns of the ruins of Jerusalem. He prays and he fasts. Daniel prays and fasts. The Jews in the book of Esther pray and fast. And in the New Testament we can read of the early church praying and fasting before they are prepared to send out Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. Fasting accompanied prayer. Times of intensive intercession, repentance, worship, seeking God's guidance. And when we do fast, we get many, many benefits. And all of them affect our relationship to God. The first one is that we become quite humble. And we become more dependent upon God. Our own physical frailty starts to show through because we are lacking food. We start to realize that we are quite frail, really. And we become much more humble. Because we're not eating, because we're not preparing food, we find we've got more time to seek God. So spiritual hunger replaces physical hunger. It reminds us that we're actually sacrificing something to get in touch with the Lord. Hopefully our own self-discipline starts to improve. And it's difficult, isn't it? To fight the temptation to eat. Kit Kats in my fridge are a no-no for Margaret. It becomes very difficult. But our self-control should improve. We focus less on the material things of the world and more on our own spiritual and mental alertness to God's presence. And technically and symbolically, if we continued to fast, we would die. 
So we are saying to God, we are earnest. This is urgent. We are asking for something that we are prepared to sacrifice in order to try and achieve communication with you, Lord. Now through the New Testament, you won't find that we are specifically required to fast. There are no special set times set aside in Scripture that says fast. But Jesus certainly assumes that we will. In Matthew 6, verse 16, Jesus said this, When you fast, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now most Western Christians do not fast but we just might be surprised if we did at how much spiritual power and strength comes our way, released in our lives, released in our church, if we did try fasting more. So verse 4, and later in verse 13, it tells us that Judah then come together in Jerusalem, men, women, children, to pray together. Congregational prayer. Corporate prayer. But on a huge, huge scale. And according to verse 13, everyone was standing. And Jehoshaphat leads his people in that prayer. And what a prayer it is. And he reminds God in no uncertain terms of God's previous promises. He's not rude, he's not disrespectful, but he's forceful, and he's direct. I wonder how many of you remember David Kossoff. Name rings a bell, a few heads are nodding. 1960s, 1970s, he was in a series called The Larkins with Peggy Mount. But he also on a Sunday, for a long period of time, Aimed at Children did a series of TV monologues based upon stories in the Bible of David, of Moses. And he had a wonderful way of putting across what was going on. I wonder what he would have made of Jehoshaphat's prayer. Look at verses 6 to 12 with me. Excuse me, Lord... You are the God in heaven, right? You do rule over all kingdoms and nations, correct? You are all-powerful and mighty, yes? Correct me if I'm wrong, Lord, but did you not give us, your chosen ones, descended from your friend Abraham, did you not give us this land forever? Did you not drive out all the previous inhabitants? When our ancestors came into this land and this temple was built in your name, 
That's right, Lord. Have we not always said since Solomon's time that we would stand here in your presence and cry out to you in our distress and you would hear us and save us? Have we not said that? Have you not promised that, Lord? Well, we have a real big problem right now. And the problem are those very people that you told our ancestors to leave unharmed when we came here. Look how they're repaying us now. They're too big a problem for us, Lord. We do not know what to do right now, Lord. But our eyes are on you. But our eyes are upon you. And that's surely one of the most touching expressions of trust in God that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. Now a number of points come out of Jehoshaphat's prayer to inspire us. And the first comes in the form of a question for you. How big is your God? Is he big and powerful? Above all things, pure, righteous? Or is he small? Is he all-powerful? Or is he a wimp? Does he love you? Or does he just put up with you? And those are important questions. Because how you perceive God will affect how you relate and respond to him. How big is your God? Secondly, notice how that prayer is God-centered. It's not person-centered. It's not problem-centered. He doesn't mention the problem until the very end. Jehoshaphat recognizes his own powerlessness. And instead, he focuses almost exclusively on the Lord's powerfulness and his promises to deliver his people. He focuses on God's power and God's word. Don't look down at the problem. Look up to the solution. Thirdly, God is interested in your problem. However big, however small anything that's discouraging or defeating you, God is interested. In Psalm 62, verse 8, David says this, Trust in Him. Trust in Him at all times. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. And fourthly, however you feel at the time, God is greater than any of your problems. We don't know what to do, but we look to you. And remember what God says also in Jeremiah 32, verse 27, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? So what happens next? Verse 14 to 17. 
The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite, a descendant of Asa, as he stood in the assembly. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat, all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. First great line. The battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They'll be climbing up by the pass of Ziz. You'll find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeroboam. You'll not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Second great line. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them. And the Lord will be with you. Third great line. You know, we must never underestimate Never ever underestimate the value and power of congregational prayer. And I say that because it's Jehoshaphat's prayer. But the answer doesn't come back through Jehoshaphat. Comes another route. And that should tell you, that should tell all of us, that God wants to involve other people in our problem solving. The chronicler who wrote this book takes the trouble to identify Jaziel and his ancestry, but apart from that we know very little. But God chooses him to deliver God's answer. So don't underestimate the value of trustworthy friends praying for you and don't undervalue above all else of your own value and importance when we do come together for congregational prayer. The second thing to notice, God provides a solution. For us, it may not be as swiftly as this one but he provides the solution. But please notice that God's solution demands a step of faith. Verse 17 says, you won't have to fight the battle. Take up your position, stand firm, see the deliverance the Lord is going to give you. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out and face them. And the Lord will be with you. So God still wants us to face our problems. But he promises to deliver us. Now from our earthly perspective, those instructions go out and face them. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. They seem quite scary really if you think about it. Mighty opponents, massive numbers. And God says, go out and face them. We know we can't beat them. But God says, go out and face them. And you wouldn't have blamed the people at this point if they had said, 
Can that be right? Can that message be right? Why hasn't the message come through Jehoshaphat? And that's the step of faith. Position yourselves, stand firm in God's word, and believe. And there were any number of ways that God could have chosen to defeat those armies. But he appointed a way that demanded the participation of faith on behalf of Judah. They had to work on a faith partnership with God. And so do we. In all our prayers, in all our actions, we have to work on a faith partnership with God. So when Jehoshaphat heard the Lord's message, what did he do? What did all of Judah do? They bowed down and they worshipped. The choir of Judah, the very people put in charge of the service of song around the Ark of the Covenant, they sang. Three armies to contend with, the first line of defense, the choir. But that is something else we should learn from. Corporate worship is powerful. Martin Luther said this, Music is a fair and lovely gift from God. Music drives away the devil and makes people happy. But to the devil, music is distasteful and insufferable. And this praise and worship that Jehoshaphat started, the singing, it started before there was a victory visible. So in times of trouble, get some worship music going. Sincere worship demonstrates genuine faith in God and in what God's word has promised us as it had promised through Jezeel. You know, some Christians today are not sure if prayer really makes a difference. They think, for instance, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, he doesn't need us to pray. Isn't he going to do what he wants anyway? Yet if you look at Scripture, through Old Testament, through New Testament, it reveals that although God is all-sovereign, he's chosen from the time of creation to work through human beings. He's in partnership with us. He is not independent of us. And scripture reveals no other way in which God interferes in the affairs of the earth. He does nothing outside the realm of prayer and intercession. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, God said in Isaiah 56. So the question we reign, is God any different now? Are his words of promise any less true? If Jesus said, for instance, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If he said, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. If he said, whatever you ask in his name would be given to you. 
if he said that he would disclose himself to us, if he said that he would reveal the Father to us, if he said that he would return in the clouds one day and that every eye will see him, what are we going to do with those promises? They are there for us. Should we not be reminding God, just like Jehoshaphat did, of those promises when we hit times of trouble? How big is your God? God bless that word to you.